Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The regulation doubleheader today, Clara Matei will talk about the deep affinities between neoclassical economics and fascism. And Edwin Ackerman will look at the politics of Mexico's president, known acronymically as AMLO. The years just after World War I get less attention than they probably should. As my first guest, Clara Matei, argues, they saw a now-forgotten upsurge in worker militancy in both Britain and Italy, which led to a savage crackdown in both countries. On first glance, pairing Britain and Italy as case studies, as she does in her book The Capital Order, might seem odd. The first was nearing its end as the world's preeminent economic and imperial power, and the second was a poor and barely industrialized country. But Matei's point is that behind the facade of liberal democracy in Britain, the country's elite was, through technocratic means, happy to impose an austerity via textbook economics that was little different from what Italians got from Mussolini's fascism, the point of both being to crush an assertive working class. The class politics of the economic side today is often hidden behind the bloodless language of mathematical models and the invocation of objective limits. Clara Matei's history is an important reminder that these apparent necessities are political choices made by a dominant class. Clara Matei is an assistant professor of economics at the New School in Manhattan. Her book, The Capital Order, How Economists Invented Austerity and Paved the Way to Fascism, was published by the University of Chicago Press last November. Clara Matei. Coming out of World War One, in both Britain and Italy, there'd been a period in which the state had had a very large role in running the war economy. That resulted in extensive changes to industrial organization, the labor market, and understanding that laissez-faire couldn't deliver the kind of production that was needed to supply a war effort. It also was revealed the centrality of the state to uh, maintaining the class structure. So what were the lingering effects on uh, political consciousness of, of uh, World War One in these two countries? The idea here is to shift the focus away for once to the 1929 crisis and the Great Depression to actually look earlier, look 10 years earlier. And what you see, which I think is very fascinating, is economic Keynesianism wasn't the democratic alternative as it was in the 1930s, in the sense that in the 1919, calls for economic democracy were much, much stronger and were all about actually overcoming wage relations and private property of the means of production. So really overcoming the foundations, the pillars of our capitalist economy. And as you uh, pointed out, it was the shock of the war, the shock of uh, the state taking over production distribution during the war that made clear how exploitation was not a natural given, but it was the outcome of explicit political decisions from those running the state and the economic elite that gained from capital accumulation. Thus, 1919, a moment of breakthrough, which had actual concrete experimentation and many attempts to organize production uh, and distribution democratically. Uh, the first part of the capital order is all about these alternatives that we forget about. But in 1919, they were quite strong. They were so strong that the ruling elite was frightened. The most frightening of the examples that I bring to the table is certainly the example of the worker council movement that was very big in Italy. The Italian movement of Antonio Gramsci, Palmiro Togliatti, and all of the militant workers in Turin were inspired by the Brits, uh, the British shop store movement. In both countries, there were enlightened Reconstructionist elites who um, wanted to reform the system in significant ways in, in the early years after World War I. Uh, could you describe who they were and what their ideas were? 
I reconstructed the birth of what we understand today as being the welfare state. So the fact that it was actually during the war that as exploitation had to be increased in order to meet efficient production and defeat the enemies, at the same time, the state had to find ways to also appease the population, the working population, and give something back in terms of social resources. So these experimentation with welfareism between 1914 and 1918 gave a lot of momentum to uh, the uh, social reforms in the immediate aftermath of the war, in which fundamentally this enlightened bureaucracy was uh, trying to say, well, we don't really want to completely defeat capitalism, but we do understand that political priorities have to be um, before economic priorities. And this is something that I think um, was, again, much more radical than what Keynes proposed in the 30s and was all about, for example, uh, the Ministry of Reconstruction is a very good example of what I called the um, Reconstructionist movement after the First World War. The Ministry of Reconstruction was built through these committees in which also women had a big role uh, in which they were really trying to think about ways to emancipate uh, the British working population through, for example, better public housing, urban restructuring so as to have libraries, areas that were communal so that we could one could flourish uh, both politically and culturally, not just as a worker. Very big was also the ed- adult education movement, which was all about providing constant possibilities of learning to the British workers throughout their lives. This was a huge threat to the status quo until that moment, which was all about laissez-faire capitalism. You touched on this earlier, but let's develop it some. The movement uh, in uh, Clydeside, Scotland, had a strong influence on Gramsci and um, Ordine Nuovo around him. Describe what Clydeside was all about and what the nature of this influence on uh, the Italians was. Clydeside was this area in Scotland that was particularly active and militant, had a very uh, strong rank and file that really protested against the fact that during the war, the traditional unions had fundamentally uh, given up on protecting the the rights of the rank and file uh, because they had fundamentally found a compromise to participate in governmental decisions. So in the Clyde side, um, during the war, especially in 1917, strikes were repressed violently by the state. Uh, but this sparked uh, the um, fundamental organizational role of these workers' committees. So the fact that one saw how direct action was much more organized if Um, fundamentally thought about democratically through these committees that worked at all levels, right, from the the workshop all the way up to the factory and potentially to the geographic area. So it is this idea of actually developing horizontal political organisms that was very important for Antonio Gramsci in in the experience in uh, Turin, in which indeed the idea was that the factory councils were the embryo of a new proletarian state that was able to overcome the alienation of the bourgeois state, which was all built on this divide between the political and economic, and instead say, we can only have authentic democracy if it is built on democratic decision-making about production distribution. So the idea of having this new cohesion through the universal producer in which everyone could participate. Well, it is uh, these ideas that were the real revolutionary ideas that uh, founded Gramsci's idea of praxis. But then he discusses in the prison notebooks once he is in jail, uh, jailed by Mussolini. But uh, in 1919, 1920, I think it is really in the fact that Gramsci participated with the workers in this organization of the factories that we saw how his ideas could indeed develop a method that was really a watershed against bourgeois ideology and bourgeois institutions. In practice in Britain, but also in theory, uh, uh, Gramsci developed the idea of, of breaking down the division between politics and economics. Um, the, the strikes, the labor militancy in both countries weren't just about classic economic issues like wages and hours and that sort of thing, but really were deeply politicized. And the worker uprisings of 1919 and 1920 in both countries were remarkably successful. And the industrialists uh, felt like they were really much, very much on the defensive. What did the things look like at that period before um, the crackdown ensued? 
This is why, again, uh, for me, it's really important to give new life and a new voice to the 1919-1920 period, because it is a period in which demands of the people were not limited to economic gains. There was a serious way in which strikes were becoming political in the very sense that they were questioning the foundations of society at large. So again, not about increasing wages, but about breaking away from the wage relation, not in the abstract, but very concretely, once more through, for example, these councils that were about taking decisions consciously and collectively. So really the idea of breaking away from the impersonal laws of this anarchic market that had ruled until that moment. So this is, for me, very important because if you associate this with the fact that, for example, in Italy, which was a largely a rural country, peasants took over the countryside and were actually organizing agricultural production through similarly through assemblies. So this was the idea, was the idea that actually once people realized during the war that the war was won thanks to uh, the power of labor and the, the, the fact that without workers, no war would have had won. And thus, in a way, how the bourgeoisie depended on these workers. Well, then these workers gained an unprecedented voice that developed in these really, really threatening situations for the bourgeoisie. Uh, just to mention, lastly, is that uh, in 1920, in the summer of 1920, all of the factories in Italy were occupied for more than a month and run uh, independently from the industrialist. And even someone like Giovanni Agnelli, the, the famous owner of Fiat, was so worried that they were, he was willing to say, okay, let's transform Fiat in a cooperative because he knew, and this uh, Giolitti made very clear, Giolitti was at the head of the government in Italy in 1920, Giolitti made very clear that there was not enough manpower to stop the occupation of the factories. Now, so not even the force of the state could stop the idea of actually uh, changing ownership from private ownership to collective ownership of the means of production as uh, these uh, people were envisaging. I'm speaking with Clara Matei, author of The Capital Order from the University of Chicago Press. And now, as we know, of course, uh, in retrospect, this is all too good to last. In both countries, uh, there is a crackdown. You quote Gramsci as saying that uh, the capitalist class may be divided by competition in normal times, but when there's a challenge from the workers, they're an iron block in their unity. What happened? Uh, what, what, what kind of crackdowns did we see in the two countries, uh, starting with Britain before we get to the, uh, the fascist crackdown in Italy? Yes. The case of Britain is unfortunately uh, sadly similar to what we're seeing in the last year uh, in Britain itself today. We are in a historical moment again in which workers have been striking, have been mobilizing, of course not in such a political way as in the period I described, but still there is movement and this movement is now stopped, as we very well know, with increases in interest rate by central banks. This is exactly what happened in 1920. Part of the way in which the work, working classes were defeated was indeed uh, thanks to the uh, agency of the British Treasury and the Central Bank that are the protagonists of the second part of the capital order, the technocrats running these institutions, who were able to fundamentally use the dials of macroeconomic management, especially the dials of interest rates, to uh, produce a downturn that disempowered the workers with the famous disciplinary device of higher unemployment. So from a moment in which workers were actually gaining in bargaining power and their voices were heard to the point that even the Times uh, had to contemplate the idea of nationalizing coal and organizing coal production according to self-governance of workers, all of a sudden, of course, workers were silenced through this form of economic coercion that comes when you increase interest rates, you create a downturn, you weaken workers, and at the same time, you cut social resources, you privatize, you do the whole package of the austerity trinity, which is the focus of the capital order, my book. Um, this austerity trinity serves specifically to shift resources away from the people 
so as to weaken them how by increasing their market dependence by making it such that the more and more you need to have money in your pocket to acquire the services and the goods you need you increase competition amongst workers and this creates a situation in which once more the capitalists win and the profit rates go up um i just wanted to end with a call the citation of gdh cole who is a Another protagonist of my story, G.D.H. Cold, was a public intellectual and one of the leaders of the Building Guild movement in Britain that was, again, very successful before austerity struck. He writes this to kind of understand what this economic downturn of 1921 meant for the workers. And he says, the big working class offensive had been successfully stalled off. And British capitalism, though threatened with economic adversity, felt itself once more safely in the saddle and well able to cope, both industrially and politically, with any attempt that might still be made from the labor side to unseat it. Here we clearly see how there is a short-term loss, which is the fact that, of course, a recession creates a moment that also for the capitalist is a moment of difficulty. But ultimately, the reality is that monetary deflation creates the proper social relations that are necessary for capital accumulation to continue. And these social relations specifically are about subduing the workers into accepting lower wages and precarious working conditions. In Italy, uh, things are a lot more explicit. There was uh, first the violence of the brown shirts, and then Mussolini takes over the state and uh, imposes a new sort of violence. Were the industrialists behind this? Did they support the fascist turn? Definitely. Absolutely. Again, a lot of similarities with today, unfortunately. Absolutely. But, you know, the fact that the industrialists were uh, backing Mussolini is a well-known story, right? And I mean, this is something that uh, even the most uh, bourgeois historians cannot deny. What I think is the contribution of the book I've published is to shed light on protagonists that have usually been kept in the shadow, which are the economists, right? The role of professional economists, academic economists in advising governments and in taking firsthand, having a personal direct role in imposing austerity, right? And so how these economic models that were justifying the shift of resources away from the people were backed by what was the emerging new paradigm that we still study today, which is pure economics. So pure economics, called pure economics then, what we would call neoclassical economics today, was actually um, diffusing in the same moment in which austerity fascism was uh, successfully winning against the workers in the 1920s. So I think what's interesting to see is that there are the industrialists, but there's also this intelligentsia, this educated elite that under the pretense of objectivity, neutrality, scientificity, was uh, ultimately justifying the brutality of the fascist regime, which was all about killing, beating political opposition and workers in order to see their models of economic orthodoxy become successful and, uh, in fact, restore state finances and restore the profit rate and bring up the capital share to the detriment of the labor share. You focus on a quartet of economists, too liberal, or become known as, I guess, neoliberal, and too explicitly fascist, Anaudi, uh, Pantaleone, Pareto, and Ricci. Tell us about um, them and their virtually indistinguishable analyses of the situation, despite their allegedly distinctive uh, political affiliations. Again, here is we see that the parallelism between liberal Britain and fascist Italy is kind of reproduced also at the domestic level if one looks at the Italian situation, because what you see is that uh, the liberal elite was enamored with Mussolini because of Mussolini's capacity to um, implement what was a quick austerity without the impediment of democratic processes. So what you see is that um, someone like Umberto Ricci and Luigi Naudi, two prominent economists, and I would like to stress that Luigi Naudi becomes our first president of the republic after uh, Mussolini is defeated in 1945, right? So after actually the end of the Second World War, we uh, have supposedly an anti-fascist republic and Einaudi takes on the most important and prestigious role. 
Well, this is same Einaudi in the 1920s was an economist that was really frightened by the idea of the workers actually taking on an autonomous, independent role in running the economy. So it's really interesting. So he was writing, for example, it is well known that the wages of workers in the industrial and commercial areas of Italy have increased noticeably. The evidence being the conspicuous increase in unnecessary consumption of alcoholic drinks, sweets, chocolates, and biscuits. These uh, economists were worried about the improper, quote unquote, behavior of people who were uh, trying to consume more than what was appropriate in order to keep up with the right level of capital accumulation. So what they were interested in was disciplining workers to produce more, consume less, which is the motto of austerity that is coined in those years and circulates amongst all of these technocrats. And economists know that they are, are very unpopular and they are aware, uh, they're very sad by the fact of being unpopular. But at the same time, they think the truth is in their hands and that ultimately they are there to bring forward this higher cause, which is all about restabilizing capitalism through austerity. There is a whole lot of moralizing here, too. You, you mentioned some of this, that uh, consumption is morally corrupt. Real men invest and save. Real men, entrepreneurs, investors, economists don't whine like sissies. That kind of moralizing around capital is a constant. We hear it very similar things today. Uh, but you know, even going back to Alfred Marshall, who said that what interest is the reward for waiting, um, there's this moral dimension to uh, what is ostensibly a technical discipline. They seem to be um, intimate traveling companions, the moralizing discourse and the techniques of economics. Yes, exactly. And this is why it's so important to take history seriously, is that these economists that are the protagonists of the book are economists that are less than today hiding their actual moral and political belief behind uh, numbers and the mathematization of the discipline. So indeed, um, they use words, they use very direct words, words that are clearly all about calling workers pigs who are basically dissipating everything in, in wine. At the tavern, these are the actual words used. And they adore strikes and they're just lazy. So this idea by which if you are a worker and you're poor, you deserve it because clearly you're behaving in a way that goes counter to the logic of capital is really obvious in their work. And I think more than just this, what is important is that they have a clear sense that their paradigm that they're trying to diffuse is a paradigm that is counterintuitive for the majority and is a paradigm that is explicitly saying we are eliminating conflict, we are eliminating class, we are eliminating the priority of the labor theory of value and thus workers at the center of production in favor of a different model that, as you pointed out, was all about individuals, was all about savers, investors as a new source of value and the idea that ultimately there's only harmony because these saver investors are working to benefit everyone else as well. The theory of abstinence is really, really important and these economists really stress it. Let's get rid of the idea that it's the worker who counts in the economy. What really matters is are those who are capable of abstaining and thus waiting and thus ultimately of saving and investing. And this is a complete abstraction. It's enough to look around today. Who are those who can save and invest if not those who are moneyed in the first place? But it's interesting to see how this absurd counterintuitive intuition is organized in such a falsely scientific way that it is actually by now completely normalized and actually the only uh, model out there in economics, really. That's the paradigm that won and that say, shapes the way society thinks at large to the point that we all feel that those with money are people that deserve it one way or another. To conclude, I think um, it might be worth conceding the fact that the neoliberals and the fascists have a point. Uh, people trying to live beyond their means and not work themselves to the bone. Those things are incompatible with capitalism, but that means we should be against capitalism and not be neoliberal or fascist. Absolutely. I could not agree more. The whole point here is to realize that we are in a system that is structurally a system that is oppressive and is exploitative and that traps our bodies and our minds. 
And it's not uh, the problem of the individuals, but it's the problem of the system as such. Thus, uh, in a post-capitalist society, it's not that people don't want to work, but they want to work in a way that is meaningful for them, in which they feel at home when they work and are not just cogs in the machine uh, working for others for a really, really low wage. I think this is something that people are understanding today very well. The anti-work movement is real in the United States, and it's connected with a serious critique of capitalism as such. And this is why I think it's important to note how these dynamics of austerity working as a counteroffensive in moments that are hot, in moments in which people might like increase their political imagination for a potential society that is different from the one they want us to naturalize. Well, it is in this moment that the technocrats, and we're seeing it now with the, the Jerome Powell and all of his colleagues um, in the central banks around the world, connected with what is happening in terms of curtailing social expenditures, it is in this moment that cutting social expenditures, regressive taxation, dear money, and all forms of policies that directly go against organized labor work to avoid us from changing society. But I do think we are in a moment in which this won't last very long because people are sick and tired and are seeing these strategies as real political strategy, not neutral any longer. That was Clara Matei, Assistant Professor of Economics at the New School and author of The Capital Order from the University of Chicago Press. For more about her, visit claramatei.com. That's M-A-T-T-E-I. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of the opening of Frederick Zhevsky's set of variations on The People United Can Never Be Defeated, a song written by Sergio Ortega that emerged from the Allende movement in Chile in the early 1970s. It was performed by Igor Levitt. Next, Mexico. The presidency of Mexico's Andres Manuel López Obrador hasn't gotten as much attention as it should. Metropolitan elites on both sides of the Rio Grande find his populism a little embarrassing, and his social outlook is undeniably more conservative than I would like. But he's also done important work in rolling back neoliberalism in the country, and as we'll hear, promoting the working class to a political centrality and restoring the capacity of a hollowed-out state to do big, important things. What are his politics? What has he done? What complaints have there been? To answer those questions, here's Edwin Ackerman, an assistant professor of sociology at Syracuse University. He's the author of a very useful short overview of AMLO's project on the New Left Review sidecar blog. Edwin Ackerman. The vexing question of political taxonomy, where exactly does AMLO fall? I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding him, classifying him, talking about him. Right, right. I think the short answer would be that he is part of the Latin American left-wing populism, which means that that there is a differentiation between that and, let's say, social liberalism, as it's understood in the U.S., but also a difference with, at least in the case of, of Mexico, and this is the case for other uh, country in Latin America too, with what I would call a sort of autonomist left, a left that is critical of state power. I mean, the Zapatistas might be the sort of exemplary case of, of that sort of left. And so it's also at odds with that left. The Marxist left also has sort of difficulty or a, a sort of ongoing negotiation with how to position itself in, re- in relation to AMLO. What I mean by Latin American left-wing populism is, first of all, the political subject that it imagines appealing to. It is based on class, but it is a much broader sense of class than, let's say, kind of traditional Marxist position of 
classes in the formal sense or even more specifically industrial working classes. In a place like Mexico, where 40 to 60 percent of the population is engaged in informal work, the notion of class has to really be transformed right, or understood differently. It also conceives, as opposed to this autonomous left, it is interested in state power, to put it simply. It is interested in using the state as an engine of redistribution, of development, and, and so forth. That autonomous left you speak of, uh, and the Zapatistas as exemplary, how strong a political force is that these days? You know, the Zapatistas emerged almost 30 years ago. I don't think it's a very strong force at this point. The Zapatistas have, you know, have their own sort of internal trajectory that is interesting in and of itself, where at some point, I would say in the mid-2000s, they basically opted for building their own autonomous communities, as opposed to maybe the more forward-facing project at the beginning of, of their movement in, 90, in 94. But you know, that whole 90s dream of changing the world without taking power seems <laughs> almost antique now. I mean, is that uh, pretty much faded? Yeah, exactly. I think that that's true. I think that the left in Mexico, at least, has moved away from that. And um, I think many sectors in Obradorismo, in, in Obradorismo or in, in, you know, in, in the party of AMLO in general, recognize in the Zapatistas in particular a big, they have a big legacy. They they sort of maintain the, the claim of a radical left alive in a period of, you know, the height of neoliberalism. There have been, over the course of years, different points of contact between Obrador and, and Obradorismo and, and Zapatista. So it's it's not a straightforward separation. It's a little more one-sided. I think <laughs> I think uh, Obradoristas would be happier being uh, closer to Zapatistas. But they see them essentially, yeah, as, as a sort of a particular face of the left. The big difference is the willingness to work with, with a capitalist state structure. So um, if AMLO's project is reversing neoliberalism, he's facing two very large obstacles. As you put it in the piece, the erosion of the working class as a political agent and the dismantling of state capacity. How do you restore the uh, political agency of the working class and its centering in political activity? It's, of course, very difficult to do. And I would say that to the extent that it is happening, it is, of course, you know, happening moderately. I'm not you know, trying to argue here that we have this whole resurgence of, of working class politics, but we have... A, a partial reemergence, you know, and you could see it in a couple of ways. One, perhaps the most important one, is that there is this process of party realignment al along class lines over the past four years. That if you look at the, the class composition of the coalition that brought him in in 2018 and the specific class composition of the support of the base of support in the present over this course of, of four or five years, there has been a transition in which the sort of credentialed middle classes uh, that were supportive uh, of him in 2018 have abandoned support for him. And he's made up for that abandonment by redoubling of support from working classes. So you have uh, a realignment actually happening. It's partly due to, on the one hand, a kind of consistent discourse that places working classes as the leading actors in the historical narrative that he is painting of, of the country. But um, there's also more concretely just a series of, of reforms that advance working class rights or, or curtail their permanent attack. Some of the major things are historic increases in minimum wages, increases in the obligatory vacation days, very important reform that facilitates forming new unions. This is a very important thing in the country. There is that sort of concrete interpolation, if you will, concrete through, through actual policy of a political agent sort of based around class. Uh, now, you mentioned unions. The unions used to be very much a corrupt part of the whole pre-structure. Um, what, what's happened with organized labor in Mexico? Throughout the 20th century, the PRI, which governed the country for most of the 20th century, built a very close relation of subordinates uh, with, with unions. So the unions of, of the PRI are, they're stuck, I guess, in the past uh, as just heavy bureaucratic structures without much going either way. They're not really a, a basis of opposition to AMLO. They're not really a basis of support in any case. What they still are, however, and this is where this law that I was mentioning becomes very relevant, what they still are is that they're an obstacle to new efforts at unionization. 
Because what happens often is that when workers try to organize in a new work in a new workplace, they find out that without them knowing in many cases that it turns out they were already unionized on paper. A lot of the workers in, in the maquiladora sector are actually on paper unionists. The dues to the unions aren't even paid by, by workers. Oftentimes, again, they don't know that they are unionized. And it only becomes an issue once they try to form a union. It turns out the labor board will tell them, actually, you already have a union. So in the previous legal arrangement, the way to get rid of an existing union to form a new union was really difficult. It was basically impossible. It was a matter of a decade-long legal procedure. No unionizing effort could really sustain that sort of requirement. So what the new uh, labor law does is it considerably facilitates that process. And you already see some of the, the results in the past years. There has been new unionization in the maquiladora sector in particular, but in many other um, areas as well. I would say, yeah, those unions, the corporate unions of the PRI are, are there and they're an obstacle, but they're sort of junk. They're sort of hollow junk. They don't really represent a force either way. And then the dismantling of state capacity part, how do you reverse that? What's AMLA trying to do to reverse that? There's two things to point out. One is that there is this effort to re-centralize the functions of, of the state and the money of the state. Part of the way that neoliberalism worked, at least in Mexico, but I think this actually might be applicable to many other places, is that it wasn't necessarily a, a contraction of the state per se, but I would say a hollowing out of the state where many of the state functions and the actual money of the state is administered by private or semi-private entities. For example, in the case of Mexico, there's all of these instances of things called fideicomisos, which I think roughly can translate as trusts, which is public money, but administered by semi-private entities in a very obscure, unaccountable way. This, obviously, in the language of neoliberalism, was part of the efforts to increase, quote-unquote, citizen control over government finances or you know, control of civil society over state finances. In practice, it was an example of, of this hallowing out of the state. So there's been an effort to re-centralize state functions, bring them in-house, as well as close down many of these pockets of money that were out of reach of state control, even though they were public monies. In a more straightforward sense, there's been this whole effort as conceiving of the state as an entity capable of doing big things, big infrastructure projects that include things like a train that will go around the entire Yucatan Peninsula that is supposed to, to start operating uh, by the end of this year, a new airport, a refinery, a transportation corridor that is going to connect the Gulf of Mexico with the, with the Pacific Ocean through the isthmus of Tehuantepec. Those are just some of the projects that, that, uh, that come to mind uh, immediately. There's several others of that, of, of that sort. So state investment in this mega project. The final point I would, I would mention here is this more controversial or kind of difficult maybe to, to understand concept that AMLO talks a lot about, which is Republican uh, austerity. It's a strange phrase. One stumbles over it. Yeah. The phrase itself, I think, is interesting on the, because on the one hand, it reveals a type of strategic adoption of the language of neoliberalism to use it against neoliberalism, at least from the perspective of, of AMLO. So that's why the, the addendum of saying Republican austerity as opposed to austerity you know, makes sense in, in the context there of debates in the country. But the idea is to say, okay, if the, the government needs to tighten its belt, uh, let's start at the top. And it involves more simplistic things like cutting down of salaries of top bureaucrats, starting by the, by the president's salary, which is, you know, I would say it's a more symbolic measure. It doesn't really have an effect on, on the budget, but it includes things of, of that sort, as well as more meaningful things like the specific set of of subsidies and loopholes available for the upper classes to receive government funding for their businesses or avoid paying taxes. Cut from the top type of austerity. I'm speaking with a sociologist, Edwin Ackerman. AMLO has been criticized for his social conservatism. I don't like that. I'm not comfortable with that. But how does that fit into his program? I'm not sure if I would call him per se socially conservative, but there are elements 
for that accusation. And the elements are, are the following. The elements are that particularly with the question of gay marriage and abortion rights, he's refused to stake out a public position for or against. He refuses to say whether he's uh, in favor or against it and instead suggests that it has to be put up for a popular referendum. Now, this, by the way, is sort of a, a moot point at, uh, at this stage because there has been significant advances on those fronts at the, at the local level. Interestingly, mostly where, where his party is in control of the local legislature. But it is true that a lot of the political capital that he has, because he is a popular president, you know, it is unfortunate that he, he doesn't throw his weight around on that, on that question. In addition to that, he has had a sort of conflictive relationship with, with certain sectors of feminism who in the past years have taken to the streets in a, in a particularly militant way uh, to protest against the persistence of femicides in the country. This is a lot of sort of direct action type, sort of black bloc type confrontation in the streets. And AMLO has been very critical of the tactics in a way that seems sort of tone deaf or disconnected from the underlying demand of, of such a movement. He's concerned with the tactics and also paranoid that it is essentially a front for the right wing, which has, in fact, tried to hijack that movement. I mean, the right wing in the, currently in the country claims to be feminist and environmentalist, right? <laughs> They'll say anything. <laughs> right, exactly. So, so he's sort of paranoid about that. And again, there's a missed opportunity there of advancing interests that I think ultimately align in a much more comfortable way with, with his ultimate project and definitely align with the party program and the, the members uh, of the party as well. At the same time, he has certain elements of what maybe I would call some form of sort of representational demands of, let's say, sort of second wave type feminism. What I mean by this is, he uh, has this self-appointed uh, policy of having a cabinet composed equally of men and women, which is something that is important in the country. Most of the, of the governors that have one running with his party are, are women. There is this significant increase in the actual participation of women in high positions in, in government and in the party. And this is promoted heavily by AMLO. To try and kind of close the question here, I would say his vision of what constitutes sort of social progressive or social liberal demands, sort of his horizon, I think, ends in the 1970s. I think whatever he absorbed of feminism, he absorbed it around that time period and hasn't really updated after that, if, if that makes sense. Better than 1950, I guess. For sure. <laughs> Better than 1950. And one thing that's interesting is that he does have what you could say a sort of you could say he's social conservative in some elements, but not reactionary, meaning he is ultimately instinctually really on the side of underdogs who are fighting for themselves. And from that angle, he can become very sympathetic to different sorts of movements. Anyway, I, I would say something, something along those lines. He's stuck in the 1970s. <laughs> okay. And then what about two issues that are interest in the United States, uh, and he must be under tremendous pressure around the drug cartels and uh, the migrants. What are the policies on those things, and uh, you know, how much is from U.S. pressure, how much is his own domestic interest? Right, right. That's a great question. Obviously, the violence with um, drug cartels is perhaps the, the most prominent problem in the country. It's been going on for a while now, beginning really in 2006, 2007. And what he's managed to do is reduce the amount of killings by, I think, about 10% or something like that, meaning not enough to make a difference in the way that I think regular people go about their lives. Of course, this is a problem inherited from the past, but there were nevertheless you know, big expectations or at least big hope around that. And I think, yeah, the levels of violence haven't, haven't subsided significantly. The general approach there has been twofold. He, on the one hand, formed a new security agency, a National Guard that uh, coordinates national level. And it has elements of the military retrained to do police work. This, of course, makes a lot of people sort of nervous about the unforeseen consequences of, of that sort of move. But it is a context in which 
the legitimacy of the state is in question in many in many regions. So reestablishing the, the monopoly of the state over the legitimate use of violence in some of these regions is an actual necessity. And it, I don't think you can go about it without an element of force in it. In addition to that, there is this effort. I think it's maybe too moderate of an effort, but an effort nevertheless to, as he puts it, take back the youth from the cartel. So basically offer all sorts of scholarship programs, etc., that can make a young person decide to do something other than join the lower ranks of the cartels. I don't know if there's concrete evidence of, of the effectiveness of that. I mean, I don't even know if it would be easily measurable in any way, but I think it's you know a laudable effort probably can only be critiqued for not being more in, intense. But that's uh, the state uh, of that. Now, in relation to particular Central American migration, which I think more concretely has been an issue of the, of the past years with, with the, the rise of the caravan method of migrating, there's been a kind of uneasy negotiation between the discourse, which he still this day maintains a very pro-immigrant discourse, with the exigencies, the, the demands of the U.S. government. And I always like to emphasize this is before, during, and after Trump, right? The, the sort of demands that the U.S. government makes on Mexico doing the dirty work of stopping Central American migrants before they reach the northern border is a permanent factor before and after Trump. So dealing with that and also getting to, to your point particularly, that the fact that some people in the regions through which the caravans go through also start to develop xenophobic outlooks. Ironically, the government can can easily claim that they are undertaking some anti-immigrant policy because they are being pressured by the U.S. It's sort of a comfortable position to, to be in, ironically, from this front, as opposed to taking it head on and saying, you know, it's something that they themselves are, are trying to do. That said, uh, like with everything here, there's more elements to the story. It's not that AMLO has tried to shut the southern border militarily. It's not just simply that. There's obviously some elements of that. There's also been efforts to offer work visas uh, to Central American migrants. I, I think a very important point here in his favor on, on, the, on this front is the pushback against the Trump administration's efforts to have Mexico be declared what's called a, a safe country, a formal category that would have basically disqualified Central American migrants in Mexico from soliciting asylum in the U.S. because Mexico would have been deemed officially a safe third country. So the pushback against accepting that, that classification was actually in the service of allowing for Central American migrants in Mexico to be able to solicit asylum in the U.S., and finally, um, his term is winding down. Mexican presidents serve only one six-year term, and he's in the fifth year now, right? Um, so what's uh, successor look like? Does he have a, a legacy? Um, how large is the party? The party is big, even though it lost a couple of years, I would say, at the beginning of his term in internal squabbles. The party, I should say, is a very recent party. It started in 2014. It formed really, obviously, around him when he won in 2018 and won big. The party became also almost immediately emptied of kind of middle and upper rank leadership who all went uh, into government. So it has been a ship that has to be built once you're already in the water, in a sense. But I would say in the past couple of years, they've sort of gotten their things together and they're a very powerful organization. To give you an example, the, the process of, of election of national delegates to the party's Congress had about 3 million people voting for delegates across the country. So that's pretty significant you know, amount of people participating in internal party affairs. One of the difficulties, however, of, of being a new party is it doesn't have any set of policies in place or precedent about how to select the upcoming candidate. Right? There is no primary process uh, on the books. And what they came up with to 
you know, avoid a series of problems is a series of, of polls, of opinion polls commissioned by the party asking the general population uh, for their favorite candidate within the party. There's basically two leading figures. One is understood to be much more closer to AMLO in an um, easier way to understand. That would be Claudia Chainbaum, who was the governor of Mexico City up until last month when she stepped down to, to run in this primary campaign of sorts. She is understood to be yeah, closer to AMLO in the sense that she came into politics with AMLO. She was secretary of the environment when AMLO was mayor of, of the city in, in 2000. Uh, and so she sort of formed politically uh, within Obradorismo, you could say. She comes from student activism in the, in the 80s. The second uh, figure there is uh, Marcelo Ebrard, who was the Secretary of Foreign Relations, also stepped down to, to run in this primary. Uh, Marcelo is, you know, has a long history of, of alliance with AMLO, but uh, had a career in politics before AMLO and is, I think, appeals more to, uh, let's say, for example, this credentialed classes. The social liberal aspect uh, is much more at the forefront with him than, let's say, the left-wing economic populist elements. There's a little bit of a sense that he might be not break uh, per se, but uh, yeah, have more. I don't know of a sort of man of his of his own or something along along those lines. Yeah, that's who I think is is leading within Morena. Now, one interesting development here is on the opposition side. You know, they've had a hard time coalescing around around the figure. This is partly because all the opposition parties now have to go in a coalition in order to be competitive. They, they, they can't run with their own parties a- anymore. Interestingly enough, in the past uh, week or so, there has been a kind of rallying around this uh, candidate who's a senator by, by the PAN, but who likes to portray herself as a sort of maverick type and likes to claim to be part of the sort of social progressive flank of, of the neoliberal right, if that makes sense. So it's interesting that the likely candidate of the opposition, of the opposition in some sense, has to compete on the left lane, has been dragged discursively, at least, on some fronts into AMLO's terrain. That was Edwin Ackerman, an assistant professor of sociology at Syracuse University and author of the AMLO Project on New Left Review's Sidecar blog. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of twice, with a two where the T would usually be, from Mission of Burma. Till next week, bye. Take a look inside. What did you think?